focus point being mainly just people who believe in the power of the media. The community came together and supported each other. Welcome to Brainwaves, a podcast about big ideas produced at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Paul Bake. This week, it's been a whirlwind year in politics. And all of those many people that listened to the phone call, why didn't they have a problem with it? Because they didn't have many people listen to calls between, I know that. For instance, the Secretary of State Pompeo was on the call. With all of those people, very few people that I know came forward. And they only came forward when you asked, and some of them are never Trumpers. This is a solemn occasion. Nobody or anybody that you know comes to Congress to impeach the President of the United States. In all the hearings, there's nothing compelling, nothing overwhelming. So the Speaker should follow her own words. What bipartisan vote on that floor and in the sham that has been putting this country through this nightmare. Clearly, there are people that we serve with that don't like the results of the 2016 election. But the country next year deciding who our president is going to be. Those were news clips from President Trump, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, and Minority Whip Steve Scalise. This week, we're going to take a look at what we can learn about the direction of U.S. politics from a state like Colorado. We'll ground the current impeachment conversation in political history, and we'll take a look at the tightrope more diverse political candidates have to walk to achieve mass appeal. First up, a look at the current state of U.S. politics through the eyes of a swing state. CU Boulder political scientists just wrapped up their annual Colorado political climate survey. Brainwave's executive producer, Andrew Sorensen, talked to one of the report's authors, Carrie Stapleton. A quick spoiler, if you're worried about the increasing tribalism in American politics, sorry about this next part. Carrie Stapleton, welcome to the show. Uh, so let's just start with the, the Colorado Political Climate Survey. You all just wrapped this up. What is it? Yes, um, the Colorado Political Climate Survey is a survey we run at CU through the American Politics Research Lab. Uh, we've been doing it each year since 2016. Uh, we actually do, do it in conjunction with a class at CU for undergraduates on political polling. So the undergraduates actually get a real-world, first-hand experience running a political poll, but we also are cognizant of the fact that this is a real-world political poll, so we want to do as high-quality research as we can. So we've been contracting out for the last four years with a company called YouGov, which provides uh, both polling companies and also academics um, high-quality samples. And for our cases here, we interview about 800 Coloradans each year. So that, like I mentioned, this is our fourth year consecutively that we've done this. And we ask a variety of questions, both election-specific, um, if there are election questions, but also things like approval ratings and then policy support, policy opposition. Uh, so just a variety of questions about what Coloradans think. For someone who's not familiar with Colorado politics, uh, a lot of people around the country do look at Colorado uh, you know, for certain instances, to, to see kind of where things are going. What have you all seen playing out in Colorado, and what does that mean for U.S. politics? So Colorado is used to be considered kind of a bellwether state, and we've had a lot of debate over the last couple of years about the purpling of Colorado. And what I mean by that is kind of the mixing of Democrats and Republicans creating a, a state where we don't lean one way or, or the other, generally speaking. Now, over the last few years, we have seen Democrats pick up um, 
both congressional seats, but also more registered voters. So there does seem to be a, sh a somewhat of a slight shift towards a more democratic state in Colorado than we have seen in the last 10, 15 years. Now, for instance, in 2018, more people voted for the Democratic House candidates than the Republican, and that was the first time that's happened in a long time. Even in 2016, when Hillary won uh, the state, more people cast a ballot for the Republican House uh, candidate. But in 2018, Democrats actually carried all the, uh, the total number of House votes by 10 percentage points, which is a very large kind of shift. Now, I'm curious, is that mostly an urban uh, vote that we're seeing a lot of people moving to Denver, a lot of people moving to Boulder, a lot of people moving to even conservative places like Colorado Springs? Are we seeing just more Democrats moving to urban centers in Colorado? And then I guess the second part to this question, what does that mean for the rural vote in Colorado? So there definitely is kind of a polarized vote in Colorado. The urban, suburban areas are certainly really strongly Democratic. And we saw in 2018, Mike Kaufman lost his uh, suburban Democratic seat to Jason Crow. Um, in the kind of Aurora suburbs. And that, I think, is indicative of kind of the national trend that we're seeing where suburbs are starting to shift Democratic. Rural voters are still pretty solidly uh, Republican, conservative voters, and urban areas are more still traditionally Democratic strongholds. Quick point of clarification. Uh, I think Mike Kaufman was Republican and lost to Jason Crow Democrat. Sorry, yes, and I had that flicks. Mike Hoffman, yes, the Republican lost to the Democrat. Sorry about that. As you look at Colorado politics, what do you find interesting from a, a national perspective? Colorado seems to be kind of indicative of a few trends that we see nationally. First, kind of this moving of suburban voters more towards the Democratic uh, Party, but also there's still a lot of polarization in Colorado on kind of hot button uh, issues. And we saw that in your recent poll. We did. Um, specifically, on uh, we asked a question on support for the impeachment inquiry, not whether or not we should impeach Donald Trump and throw him out of office. We specifically asked about the inquiry that the House of Representatives uh, recently kind of undertook. But strong polarization there with virtually all Democrats supporting it, virtually all Republicans opposing it. And we'll, we also see that on things like Proposition CC. Democrats strong support for Prop CC. Uh, Republican strong opposition. And if you're not from Colorado, uh, Prop CC is a measure challenging uh, a law called the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. There's a lot of ins and outs on uh, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. It's pretty complicated stuff, but briefly it essentially caps the amount of revenue that the state of Colorado can keep uh, from taxes and there's a formula that issues a refund. Carrie Stapleton, what are we seeing as far as those party line votes in Colorado? Um, what does that tell you for what we should expect in 2020? I think we should expect a lot of the same in 2020 as we've been seeing. A lot of strong Trump supporters. They're not going to, at least at this point, it's looking like Trump supporters are unlikely to break with the president. Uh, Democrats, it does not look like they're going to support President Trump. So I think we can, can probably see or uh, expect to see a lot of the same continuation that we've seen. Polarized electorate, um, probably a fairly negative campaign, um, both presidentially and also on down ballot would be my guess, um, just because there are these clear cleavages in Colorado politics, but also nationally between Republicans and Democrats. If you pay attention to politics, you may know that uh, Governor John Hickenlooper, fairly popular governor in Colorado, is coming up against Cory Gardner, the incumbent Republican senator. Uh, and 
Kerry, what are we seeing as far as the wins going into 2020? Does it look like Corey Gardner is going to lose that seat? So the initial results, not just from our survey here, but other uh, surveys that have been uh, taken uh, about the Colorado senatorial election, shows that Corey Gardner does have some strong headwinds that seems likely, or at least at this point, it seems um, that Senator Gardner probably would be considered the underdog to uh, John Hickenlooper's senatorial uh, campaign, um, both from his approval ratings, uh, Senator Gardner's approval ratings. He's generally underwater, meaning more disapproval than approval, uh, both in our survey and then also other surveys taken in Colorado. And John Hickenlooper has strong support, uh, Democrats and independents. He was a very well-known, popular um, governor in Colorado for eight years, and he still has strong name recognition and still has uh, strong approval ratings in amongst Democrats and independents. So it's, I think for Cory Gardner's he, uh, uh, perspective, he's going to need to convince independents that he is the right candidate for them. And one final note, uh, as you've alluded to, we're seeing a hardening uh, along party lines in U.S. politics, and a lot of polls are suggesting that people are kind of giving up on American politics. They don't have a lot of faith in the institution as it is. Uh, do you have any hopeful words for those people, or uh, just uh, if you could sum up why people should care about U.S. politics, why they should keep paying attention? Well, certainly. I think if I have one message I'd like to get across, if you're registered or if you're able to vote, vote. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, Republican, Independent, Green Party, Libertarian. If you can vote, vote. And that's one thing, one positive we have seen come out of the last, you know, seven, eight years of American politics. It's that people are generally speaking, more engaged in terms of voter turnout. So people are turning out to vote. 2016, we had about a roughly a 60% turnout nationally. Um, Colorado usually outperforms the national trends. But I think the one thing is that people need to stay engaged. It always seems like um, nothing will ever get better. It will always be awful. We'll always have people screaming at each other. doesn't have to be the case. We get out and engage both voting and also with each other. Talk to your friend who happens to be a Republican or a Democrat. Have those conversations. Be civil. Just because people disagree on policy issues doesn't mean it has to be a personal attack. Get out and vote and also just be nice to each other. And try to understand why people think the things they think, believe the things they believe, and do it civilly. All right. Gary Stapleton, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. As the U.S. House bears down on an impeachment vote, we thought it was worth noting. We've been here before. The country has survived, but it could get ugly. Brainwave's Dirk Martin talked to CU Boulder political scientist Ken Vickers to find out how. Ken Vickers, welcome to Brainwaves. Thank you. We are nearly one year away from the 2020 United States general election for the president and a number of House and Senate seats. The current political climate is very much partisan. In your opinion, describe America's political landscape and where you see it going in the next year. Yeah, our politics is as corrosive as it's been for generations. Uh, we've gone through periods where uh, we've had partisan divides as deep or arguably even more deep than we have currently. But we're pretty much uh, at the deep end of corrosiveness of uh, polarization in American politics. I think you'd have to look back 
to the very beginning of the 20th century uh, at the, the first decade or two of the 1900s, or go back to the, the period right around the Civil War period when the country, in fact, fractured into two regions and went to war with one another. Can you give us some background on how our political leadership became so divided, or has it always been divided, and for some reason it's just more caustic and openly expressed nowadays? Our politics, have, it's always been a team sport, but sometimes the teams have gotten a lot along a lot better than they do currently. But we've always had two major parties. There have been a few periods where we've had minor third parties that have persisted for 10 to 20 years, and then they get reabsorbed into the two major parties. So it's not unusual at all to have partisan politics. That's the norm. The parts that different that's different today, I think, is, is the rancor, the lack of any sense of goodwill across the divide between the two parties. In political science, a decade or more ago, we thought it was mostly an elite phenomenon, that this was something that happened among the elected officials and the folks that worked in the political parties as paid staffers for the parties. It's clear that that polarization has moved down into the rank and file to the grassroots. There's a lot of debate about what the causes of that are. I think part of it has to do these days with uh, with social media, uh, with the, the fracturing of, of media across from three major networks to dozens and dozens of, of different uh, channels for news. And more recently, the individualization of news feeds through Twitter and other kinds of news aggregators where people, they get to see the story they want to see. And so there's much less communication across partisans at, at the grassroots level and certainly at the elite level. And, and I think that's part of what's driving the corrosiveness is, is just a simple lack of knowing people who don't share our own individual ideologies and know them well and understand that they are decent people, they're good people, they just differ with us on ideological grounds, policy kinds of grounds. Uh, And that corrosiveness is really very damaging, I think, to our national politics. What would it take to get Republicans and Democrats to work more closely together? Uh, Author and professor Louis Galambos talks about how President Eisenhower in the 1950s was able to get leaders from both sides of the aisle to work together and did so by seeking the middle way between the extremes. Can this be done in this day and age? I don't know that it can be done in this day and age. Um, there may be something that brings us together and and changes that. What changed it in the early part of the century was the Great Depression and World War II that brought a sense of national purpose and a greater consensus around major activities of the of the national government. There were still lots of disagreements about how large the government should be and some of the things it should be doing. But there was much more consensus about the range of choices that were viewed as acceptable choices. And people differed, sometimes vigorously, about where the line should be drawn in, in terms of taxes and programs of the national government. But now there doesn't seem to be a national consensus Uh, And we're seeing the policy choices that are being actively debated moving much further to the left and much further to the right than than I've seen in my lifetime and I think that have existed for a very long time in American politics. One last question, Uh, the impeachment inquiry. Um, How is that shaping the political climate? We haven't seen an impeachment quite like this one since the uh, impeachment of Andrew Johnson, where it was an impeachment process that was driven by animus and and fundamental disagreement about the the legitimacy of a president of the United States, that this person should never have been 
uh, named president of the United States. Um, it took a long time for the country to heal from the divisions of that impeachment in the 1870s. Uh, and partly it's because it was a symptom of, of larger, deeper cleavages in American society. So you could see that impeachment of Andrew Johnson as uh, being a symptom of the kind of corrosive polarization in American politics. I kind of see this current impeachment inquiry much the same way. This looks to be largely a political impeachment, trying to to uh, either lead to the impeachment and conviction of the president or to attach enough baggage around him so that it would be difficult for him to run a successful political campaign. To me, that's not a good move for the republic, um, and not because I agree or disagree with what the Democrats want to do, but but what happens with the next president and the president after that? Are we going to wait for elections, regularly scheduled, calendared elections, so that we have peaceful of tra- peaceful transfer of, of power from whoever won an election to whoever wins the next election? Or are we going to uh, engage in this kind of quasi-criminal uh, justice process to try to drive presidents from office between elections? I don't think this is helping overcome the polarization in American politics. I think what this is, is a political activity on the part of the Democrats to try to give themselves an advantage moving into the into the November election in 2020. It may be successful. Uh, I, I, I don't know that it won't be successful. I think it might be. But success in the short term can often be defeat in the long term. Uh, and, and here the defeat would be for the basic democratic institutions of American politics. Ken Bickers, thank you. You bet. With Latino candidates, several women, and a gay man running for the chance to be the Democratic candidate for president in 2020, this political cycle is looking more diverse than any we've ever seen. That doesn't mean it's easy to be one of those candidates. That's according to Celeste Montoya, a professor in women and gender studies at CU Boulder. Brainwave's Lisa Marshall asked her about the challenges facing this group of candidates. So how have we been seeing this play out on the debate stage? We have a very diverse group of candidates up there. Are they in a kind of a awkward position in that they're trying to appeal to, they're appealing to the masses, but at the same time, they want to know that the people, you know, from their own underrepresented minority can put their trust in them. How is that challenging? Well, I think that a lot of those candidates are definitely trying to demonstrate that they're qualified, that they're credible candidates, right? Sometimes those are the obstacles that groups that have been underrepresented in politics have to face is that when the default has been a particular type of candidate, who is seen as being qualified often fits who those past candidates have been. And so these candidates are having to kind of demonstrate that they're qualified and running based on their identity is not necessarily going to be the most effective way of doing that. But at the same time, uh, within the Democratic Party, that's also a way that the party can signal that they are going to be representative of these different groups. It's a way of signaling a different sort of leadership and that sometimes those identity appeals can also be important. But it's one of those things where it's sharing an identity with somebody is important, that there is some meaning attached to that, but that it's not the only important thing. 
Can you talk a little bit about uh, the Clinton campaign? At least some people thought that she made too much of the fact that she was a woman. How, how did it, I mean, can it backfire, I guess? It can absolutely backfire. Uh, we saw that within the presidential primary that in, in this second campaign, uh, well, in the first campaign, Clinton didn't emphasize her gender um, a lot, as much as she did in her second run. And in her second run, she emphasized it. And in the primary, we saw, you know, as she was running against uh, Bernie Sanders, that Bernie Sanders supporters, you know, were often uh, pretty critical of that, that women who were supporting Bernie Sanders were often doing so um, for policy reasons, as were Clinton supporters. Uh, but when they were kind of being asked why they weren't for voting for Hillary, then they were kind of resented the fact that just because they were women that they would automatically vote for for the female candidate and I think anybody will, will will kind of respond in that same sort of way that assumption that the identity is the only reason somebody would be voting for somebody uh, so candidates just need to be careful in terms of talking about the significance and the importance of their identity in coming into the campaign and you you mentioned an anecdote about just recently on the debate stage Different candidates were um, able to bring things up about Biden and others were not. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? So I was just talking about how um, candidates who have been underrepresented are parts of groups that have been underrepresented uh, in politics before. They often have kind of a, a narrower range in which they can kind of perform their identity or even just in, in their behavior, right? Because there are often uh, stereotypes about what kind of appropriate behavior is or isn't. And uh, so recently, Julian Castro um, got pretty aggressive in taking on Biden. Um, you know, all of the candidates know that Biden is one of the front runners and so are taking a little bit more aggressive approach. But Julian was kind of the first one to really take, a, you know, take Biden to task. And he was punished pretty heavily. People responded like, was it too harsh? Was it, you know, was it ageist? Was, you know, what was it in terms of how he's doing it? In subsequent debates, we see different candidates like Pete Buttigieg, who's, uh, who also took a really aggressive approach and was not penalized and was actually rewarded for that. And so some of the research says that candidates of color um, are a little bit more restricted in terms of how they can perform anger or aggression and that they're more likely to be perceived as, as you know, not wanting to overdo it. Um, Barack Obama, the stuff that is written about him actually talks a lot about that, about he was always pretty even killed. In fact, they even had kind of jokes on it on Saturday Night Live. I, I, I think mm -hmm. that was where, or on one of the late night shows where they had like his anger interpreter. Right? Yes. And so it was the idea that um, part of that was, was that performance that, you know, he needed to show that he could be a strong commander in chief. But if he got too aggressive in his tone, then he might be stereotyped as an angry black man. Oh, now, we see that in juxtaposition of some of the other pairs, right? So Trump um, is pretty aggressive and angry in a lot of his rhetoric, um, but often is lauded for it by his supporters. When Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were going, if, you know, if Hillary Clinton raised her voice and got aggressive, then she was seen as being shrill, but Bernie Sanders could kind of raise his voice and get angry, and that was seen as part of his charm. Some of these, you know, we, we can think about in terms of personality, but par also part of it is in terms of what are the expected performances that people can give related to their gender and racial positioning. Um, and the fact is that groups that have been underrepresented really just have a smaller range of what is seen as acceptable. They're kind of uh, damned if they do and damned if they don't. How does this increased diversity uh, in political participation impact 
A, what we're talking about, this, the issues that we just as a society are bringing up, and B, um, the kind of laws that we're considering passing. Right. So, you know, we already see that some of the candidates within the Democratic primary are changing the issues that are being discussed and the way that things are being understood. Julian Castro has been actually pretty impressive on that front. He hasn't been getting a lot of attention, but he's been bringing up uh, perspectives from communities of color, um, whether it be issues on immigration, uh, whether it be issues on uh police reform. He's also been talking about groups that he doesn't necessarily share that identity with. He talked about um, the murder of trans women. Any other examples of things that you've seen talked about on the debate stage that we might not have been talking about if we had a less diverse field of candidates? This has been a very different debate. I've been trying to tell my students that, like in terms of how, what a spread of issue that we're seeing more gender issues, we're seeing more issues related to sexual, um, sexuality, um, gender identity, that these are issues that weren't even on the political agenda and that the Democratic Party, like in terms of the Democratic Party, has really started to shift positions that... Um, for a long time where they were a lot more moderate on mm -hmm. and they're starting to raise um, you're starting to see the diverse coalition that they've kind of built and are in fact relying on um, if they're going to be competitive at the national election thank you so much for joining us celeste okay. i appreciate it thanks that's it for this episode of Brainwaves. I'm Paul Bake. This episode was produced by Dirk Martin and myself. Andrew Sorensen is our executive producer. Sam Linneruth is our digital producer. We'll see you next time on Brainwaves. Brainwaves.